what practical steps? <laughs> that was my accidental Scottish yeah. accent. What practical steps? What steps? <laughs> like crates. Like you from the same part of Scotland as Shrek. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at JasperCH on Twitter. Joining me this week, we have got... Isla, who is Isla Watt on Twitter. Uh, Hugh, Hugh R. Breakin on Twitter. And Georgie, Georgie underscore R. Harris on Twitter. We are in Scotland, up in Edinburgh, um, and uh, quite fitting because last week, John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer, was like, uh, yeah, we'd let Scotland have a new referendum, independence referendum if the Scottish government asked for it. Um, which pissed off Scottish Labour a bit because that is not Scottish Labour policy um, and it has re- reignited a fresh debate about independence within the Labour Party and the Scottish Labour Party um, and what their approach to independence should be. Uh, everyone here, I think, has very strong opinions on Scottish Labour. Um, everyone's smiling as I say that. Uh, on Scottish Labour and independence and what uh, the party should be doing. Uh, so we'll just chat a little bit about that. So I actually voted yes in 2014, which is a bit of an interesting opinion, um, considering I am now a Labour member and don't really hugely support independence at the moment, but um, I guess on a sort of personal and like theoretical level, I do support the concept of independence, but I, if there was a referendum tomorrow, I probably would vote no, because everything else politically is a mess, we just don't want to add to more mess, really. I think it is important that Scottish Labour have a pretty solid position on it, um, but circumstances definitely have changed since the last referendum. Um, you see people on the yes side going around saying, oh, if we were told that if we voted no, you would get to stay in the EU, but look where we are now. All those sort of circumstances have changed a lot. So I think there, is, there are arguments for another referendum, and Scottish Labour maybe shouldn't take such a strong stance against, as it maybe did the first time, but it's... I think with regards to the union, there's a lot of questions and things to be discussed around that, especially. I think it's I think it's an interesting one. My personal position on independence has always been quite quite agnostic. I did vote no in 2014, but I arrived at that position quite late, and I have a I have a lot of sympathy with the argument that everything has gone horrendously wrong since 2016. On the other hand, I do also think that the Brexit process is not a good advert for leaving a union. Um, but the thing about McDonald's intervention that I thought was particularly unhelpful wasn't so much what he was saying, it was the fact of the messenger. A lot of charges have been thrown against Scottish Labour by, by the SNP and by their supporters, some of which have stuck, some of which have some of which haven't. But one which has been particularly, I think we'd all have to agree, is particularly damaging is the charge that Scottish Labour is a branch <laughs> office, there's that phrase, of UK Labour. To have... Scottish Labour policy being essentially contradicted on the hoof by the by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who went on to further underline nationalist myth-making by referring to Westminster as an English Parliament rather than what it is, the Parliament of the United Kingdom, was, I think, deeply unhelpful. I think there's a decent argument for saying that there are arguments in favour of taking a more nuanced approach to independence, although I agree with Isla that it's crucial to have a position so that people know where we stand. But I think that that policy has to come from the Scottish party and the Scottish party has to have freedom to set that without interference from above. I will give a slight disclaimer before any cybernats attack me on Twitter that I am English. (laughs) Uh, I've lived here since 2014. Um, Actually, a few weeks before the first, well, hopefully the last (laughs) um, Scottish independence referendum and it was funny because I moved, I think it was at the beginning of September the referendum was on the 18th and if I'd arrived like two days earlier or something like that I would have been able to vote in the referendum and I remember at the time thinking that that was ridiculous because I was like I've never lived in Scotland I have no opinion why should I be allowed to vote on it and I think at the time I was 18 just coming to uni and I was like wow Scottish independence this is really exciting I remember being in the meadows in Edinburgh and there was a massive yes rally like a couple of days before the referendum and taking a picture and just feeling like 
it was so politically charged and exciting and then I remember staying up on the night of the referendum and kind of being disappointed that um, that it wasn't a yes just because that would have been quite fun for a naive 18 year old uh, just living in Scotland but I think now well I, if, if there was a referendum tomorrow I would 100% vote no I think the thing for Scottish Labour is, and I think the thing that's damaged Scottish Labour in every single election in the recent years is being in the middle between the SNP and the Scottish Conservatives. So whether that be on Brexit, so our shambles of a position in the European Parliament elections, no one knowing what we're standing for, or on another constitutional issue of obviously independence that we weren't seen as unionist enough but also not seen as pro-independent so it kind of left Scottish Labour in this no one really likes you because they don't know what you stand for so that's why there needs to be a strong position which I do think there is in Scottish Labour I do think the strong position is pretty much no to second independence referendum we are not generally in favour of Scottish independence and I think that's why so many members of Scottish Labour were so outraged when John McDonnell and then also Clive Lewis spoke without really knowing, I think kind of wading into this mess and I just think they didn't really think about how much they were throwing Scottish Labour in just kind of worsening this position of being so in the middle and this thing like Hugh mentioned of being a branch party and I know this is not, this is off topic, so I'm going to throw it in anyway, of just Scottish Labour recently commenting on the Panorama documentary on anti-Semitism for no, like, no reason but why it didn't have to do that. That's just another example of like, <laughs> are we just a branch party now, a branch office? Um, that was just another terrible, terrible day in, in the Labour Party. Um Yes. Or is it also known as a day in the Labour Party? (laughs) (laughs) Everyone mentioned Brexit. Um, In my mind, as the the dumb Englishman who's come up to Scotland, um, there are... I've always seen it as quite a difficult line to take for Labour or any party, really, to be um, anti-Brexit and anti-second independence referendum because the political pressure on Labour now is to move to a second Brexit referendum. Um, But Scottish Labour is still like, no, we shouldn't have a second independence referendum for Scotland. Um, And I just wonder, would any of you be able to give any insight on how and why there seems to be this different perception of, he was raising his hand at this, different perception of a yes vote to a leave vote, because both are votes to exit um, unions, one considerably older than the other, granted, but unions nonetheless. Um, uh, both are nationalists. Um, it is the Scottish National Party um, at the end of the day. Um, but the yes vote isn't associated with xenophobia or any, any of the kind of stuff which the Leave campaign is associated with. I just want to know why um, it is that it's not the case with the yes campaign and whether... Part of John McDonald's political calculation, if there was a political calculation in his comments, were to like leech SNP voters away to voting Labour. So I'll start right at the end, actually, and just make quite a brief point about John McDonald. You're saying, you know, if there was an element of political calculation in what John McDonald says, there is an element of political calculation in the way John McDonald ties his shoelaces. Um, one case which I've seen put in a number of ways, it was my instinctive reaction. Um, David Clegg for the uh, Daily Record wrote a piece arguing this as well that the real audience for McDonnell was partly SNP parliamentarians there is an extent to which Labour Labour High Command at a UK level has decided that um, Scottish Labour is unlikely to recover anytime soon which is a position that you can kind of understand why they would think that and has made the call that cultivating good relationships with essentially securing the cooperation of the SNP in Westminster is more important than a possibly doomed attempt to recover lost ground here. So I think that's, whether that's definitely the case or not, I'm not sure, but I think it's, uh, I think it will have been part of the calculation and they will have been aware that it doesn't hurt to give the impression 
to SNP parliamentarians that the Labour leadership is not as hostile as its predecessors to their core demand. One thing that was inescapable in 2016, however different than mood music, was that not so much yes and leave, but a lot of the case for no looked very similar to a lot of the case for remain. And I don't mean simply you have your appeals to economic solidarity and ties, um, the safe option, criticisms of project, fear, both the positives and the negatives. One discussion I was having on Twitter earlier today uh, was the argument that, as we're all told, leave polled extremely poorly in Scotland. Now, it, that can be exaggerated. You know, 38% of the population is, is still almost 4 in 10 Scots voted leave. That's, that's quite a lot. But um, certainly they were less successful than anywhere in England with the exception of London, which was close. Um, but one interesting argument, which I've danced around for a while without actually making, is that a lot of the anti-system sentiment on which leave successfully capitalised over the rest of the UK had already been tapped into and mobilised and harnessed for the Yes campaign in 2014, with the result that these voters, often from formerly industrial areas, from less well-off regions, who had some anti-system anger, were kind of within the wider orbit of Yes and the SNP, which was fairly solidly, if often unenthusiastically, directed towards a Remain position in 2016. I don't know how much all of that addresses your question, but I think it's an interesting point and I think underappreciated in analyses of why Scotland is as anti-Brexit as it mostly is. I think, I think another point that is often made in this debate about Scottish independence and Brexit is that people say, well, if you support people's vote, um, then surely you should also support another Scottish independence referendum because it's putting it back to the people, giving people another chance. And I think it's actually quite easy to make the argument as to why that doesn't necessarily have to be the case because in... 2014 people made a decision to go with the i'm doing quotation marks here you can't see the status quo um no they voted no um there was no constitutional change you know nothing major was decided in terms of completely changing the borders of a country um trade deals economics there was nothing major constitutionally decided but in 2016, when the UK voted to leave the EU, that's a major constitutional decision. It then is fitting that the public would get to decide and have a say on the terms of whatever deal's made. Um, and I think, while well, I'm in support of a people's vote or confirmatory public vote, whatever Labour wants to call it, final say, final say you know, whatever that is, let's call it a people's vote. Um, and I think that would be remain versus whatever deal the government would put forward which is seeming increasingly unlikely now but I think it is very different the 2014 Scottish independence referendum versus the 2016 EU referendum they're completely different things and the same argument is not there as to the people should get another say in one there was a major constitutional change in the other there's not I think that's the difference. Um, and I think another thing is about, in terms of like the what it was like campaigning in the EU referendum in Scotland, the SNP didn't campaign. The SNP just were not visible. And the SNP are so... Everyone thinks that they're the most pro-Remain, pro-European party, and a lot of them are, like a lot of the members are. But in terms of the party itself, a lot of their big hitters actually did not support Remain. Like Pete Wishart, just one example. Um, they're actually, and a lot of their um, electorate did vote Leave. And I think it's quite a prescient thing that a lot of people down south maybe don't appreciate that the SNP isn't like the most pro-European parties that ever exist, I think is kind of ignored, given the fact that they barely campaigned in 2016 for Remain. Just picking up on that point, um, kind of related, I remember in the recent European elections, there was um, people in England, well, obviously in England, because of what I'm about to say, 
but people in England made a map of the poor main parties to vote for in what areas and in Scotland it was like vote SNP for make sure we have as many pro remain like MEPs and most people who aren't SNP supporters in Scotland were like no this is ridiculous because the SNP may be on the surface to a non-Scottish person a pro remain party but at the core of it, they're a nationalist party, their core aim, their single party issue is Scottish independence. Um, and being part of the EU works with that, but it's not it doesn't mean they're a very strong pro European party. And I think a lot of Scottish people were quite angry by that suggestion. Um, maybe SNP, pro-European SNP supporters were probably fine with it, but um, other parties such as the Lib Dems, who are obviously very pro-European, um, and other Labour members were not happy. We mentioned uh, Scottish Labour being a branch office um, of the uh, National Labour Party. Um, uh, that's a charge which isn't levelled against uh, Welsh Labour. Um, it's not levelled against the Scottish Conservatives. Was it ever um, before Ruth Davidson? Does anyone know if that's a thing? Yeah. Hugh says he's got opinions on this. Uh, <laughs> I think that the the Scott the Scottish Tory revival under Ruth Davidson is two things. One, it's a bit of a myth, and two, it's far less down to her than it is often attributed to being. I think essentially that the people in Scotland when they're asked describe themselves as being consistently more left-wing than people in England but when you actually drill down into what their actual political beliefs are in terms of how they think about issues of redistribution, issues of economy, of, of culture, our political beliefs are not nearly as far from the UK-wide average as we would like to think. Fundamentally we aren't actually particularly more progressive, we just don't like Tories. Um, now part of that is due to the fact that the SNP is a broadly centre-left party, it's a broad church but it's largely a centre-left party, but it's not their fault that some parts of their support are people who might be quite right, might be quite right wing but want Scottish independence, they don't really have anywhere else to go. The Scottish Tories aren't polling tremendously highly. They are, in some areas, areas like rural Ayrshire and rural Aberdeenshire, which demographically would be rock-solid Tory seats in England. Um, they triumph in these places. Um, but they're still, you know, they're a bad third in most of the central belt, at least under normal circumstances, if you can call the 2017 election normal circumstances. They benefit from unionist tactical voting against the SNP as well, and that's the crucial point. The Tories are, have been the inevitable beneficiaries, Georgie was talking about this earlier, um, of polarisation around a single issue. Specifically that, for much of the Scottish electorate, uh, the issue is independence. And the Tories are the party of Scotland said no, they are the party of diehard opposition to the very thought of another independence referendum. And if that's your push button issue, that's probably who you're going to vote for. And I think that any Scottish Conservative leader would have taken that position and enjoyed at least some success with that. I think the Ruth Davidson effect is massively overstated by the media simply because a lot of them rather like her. She's a personable, uh, charismatic, interesting woman who is not politically an extremist. Uh, she's got a good way with words and she can be spun as this figure who has revitalised the party. But if you look at the sort of people who have been elected as MPs, uh, the Scottish Tory bloc at Westminster, there is no sense that they are Davidson's people in Westminster, which was something that people thought might be. There is no sense that they are Davidson's people in Westminster, which is something that people speculated they might be on their election in 2017. You've got people like the ludicrous Ross Thompson, who are very much on the Brexiteer Johnson side of things so I guess that would be my response to the Ruth Davidson effect I think I think in order to be to avoid being referred to as a branch office of national labour there needs to be some form of disagreement or opposition or putting up some form of challenge between Scottish labour and UK labour however with the direction of travel that the Labour Party is going in in terms of this aim of the left of the Labour Party just trying to sweep any form of office that they can or any position in the Labour Party in terms of they have to appoint a so-called Corbynite. Um, that's just the aim and 
that's what's happening in Scottish Labour. Um, obviously, Richard Leonard beat Anas Sawa in, 20, oh, is it 2016 now? 2017. 2017. Yes, 2017. I was the member, years so it's definitely 2017. Yeah, in 2017. Yeah, obviously, Richard Leonard won. And Richard Leonard isn't, like, kind of on the far left of the party. But he was seen as the more left candidate. And it was seen as a victory for the Corbyn... Corbyn supporting wing of the party. The extent to which Richard Leonard is actually a massive part of the Corbynite wing of the Labour Party can be disputed. But I think that it that in in just trying to take control of Scottish Labour and make it its aims align with UK Labour in every single conceivable way, that is just decreasing the relevance of Scottish Labour. And a person in Scottish Labour that I love and really admire is Kezia Dugdale. And obviously there was not there was not a great deal of electoral success under Kezia Dugdale as leader. But I would argue that that was more due to the, the circumstances that she was in. She was given that job at such a tricky time, at the worst time for Scottish Labour. She did the best she could with it. And I know that people have a lot to say about Kez, but I really, really rate her. At least she put up some form of opposition. At least she differentiated Scottish Labour from UK Labour. And she got a lot of abuse for it. Um, But I think that that's healthy. And I think it's not necessarily disagreeing for the sake of disagreeing, but there needs to be some form of differentiation making Scottish Labour about Scottish issues. For example, Brexit was such an own goal. Scottish Labour should have taken such a strong position on that in coming out in terms of... Um, in support of a confirmatory public vote in saying remain in reform but did not do that because didn't want to offend the leadership of the UK Labour Party um, I think that's just quite undeniable we need to differentiate ourselves more I think that a criticism that was made of her leadership and to which she was vulnerable was that um, she was equivocal on the union uh, not wholly equivocal, but certainly you got the impression that she wasn't as staunch a defender of it as as she might have been. There was, of course, uh, that Stushy in 2017 about um, her having allegedly backed uh, or indicated her having alleged about her having allegedly indicated support for Scottish independence in the aftermath of the. Um, Brexit vote. I certainly supported Scottish independence in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote. I think most of us probably did. Georgie may not have done. That was a slight problem, but we have kind of replaced a leader who... I, I like a lot of what Richard Leonard stands for. Um, so this isn't intended as a particular attack on him. Um, but we have replaced a leader who is equivocal on the Union with a leader who is equivocal on the European Union, which is a far less promising polling position in Scotland, which is a problem. Ultimately, we're the only party, the only major party in Scotland that agreed with the electorate in both referendums. You'd think we would have spun that into something a little bit better than this. One final point on Scottish Labour. Um, We've talked a lot about the differentiation and the need to not be a branch office. Um, What practical steps could Scottish Labour take to achieve that differentiation? I think a good point to start on with achieving differentiation from the UK party would be to be confident in their own sort of opinions. Um, and as Georgie was saying, I think that was something that was done more so under Kezia Dugdale um, than it is being done now. So I think, I mean, this is kind of applies to the UK-wide party as well, but we need a pretty solid stance on both Brexit and independence. And um, with Brexit, it pretty much should definitely be um, remaining reform, complementary vote, all that sort of vote. Complementary public vote. Amazing. And for independence, um, probably should be for not supporting another independence referendum, but maybe not, in my opinion, it might not be as a strong no as it was last time. Um, but I guess in terms of my personal opinion, I, that's kind of how I stand as well. Um, not, not a strong against it but it's not a great idea considering the current political climate and I think taking those strong positions would really help Scottish Labour um, sort of show to the electorate that we're still relevant we're still kind of um, we're not just fence sitting which is definitely what happened in the European elections and that we can kind of hopefully rebuild from there and I think it will not go down well with some people at a UK level but I think it's definitely a risk we have to take 
notice that has been taken in the past? Yeah, definitely to reiterate about taking a strong position on Remain and Reform. Honestly, campaigning in the European Parliament elections for my sins was the trickiest thing because no one knew what we stood for. No one knew. Um, And I think another thing that... I don't think that Labour has been strong enough about, um, which is a massively prevalent issue, a social issue, about transphobia. I don't think that Labour really has taken a strong stance against the rise in transphobia as it should have. I know that a lot of individual MPs have spoken against it, um, but I think in Edinburgh there's such a massive climate at the moment of... (laughs) There's so many turfs and so many people being horrifically transphobic. I don't know why Edinburgh particularly, but it's just a weird transphobic climate, which is horrendous um, for so many trans and non-binary people. And it seems like in Scotland, because it's a smaller country, there's a lot more opportunities for transphobes to group together and spread their transphobia. I think Scottish Labour, Scottish Labour took a really strong stance against transphobia that that would just be such a good message and I think like I'm not saying that UK Labour Party disagrees with it because I'm sure that Corbyn is very much against transphobia but I think Scottish Labour shouldn't be afraid to come out first and say these things or just to take any stance or kind of put themselves on the line and I think there's um, an issue with a lot of MSPs at the moment sharing kind of problematic views let's say uh, I think it would be great if the Scottish Labour leadership um, and I know particular M- M- MSPs like Monica Lennon have been really strong against transphobia um, but I think that would be great for Scottish Labour and Richard Leonard to come out against that I make a couple of points about what I think Scottish Labour can do, one is that and I think this has been touched on already Richard Leonard specifically needs to be a much more visible figure. He needs to be making more high-profile public interventions. It needs to be very clear that he is the person who is setting Scottish Labour's stance on issues. He needs to be happy to disagree, not to pick fights, but to disagree where appropriate, for instance, on Brexit with the um, UK-wide leadership. One point I would make, bringing it back to independence, would be one one aspect of polling on public views towards independence. There's quite a lot of people who don't think we should have an independence referendum anytime particularly soon, but aren't keen on Westminster telling us we can't. You know, I think that's... If I was making policy for Scottish Labour, which I can't possibly stress enough that I'm not, um, I would be very wary of taking a harder line position on independence than we oppose an independence referendum. We will argue against it and vote against it in the Scottish Parliament. We don't think it's what our country needs. However, if the Scottish Parliament, especially if the Scottish Parliament with a refreshed mandate after the next election, but possibly it's worth considering now, if the Scottish Parliament votes in favour of holding other independence referendum, whether we, we need to have a serious think about whether we think it's appropriate for Westminster, particularly once the Brexit dust is settled, if the Brexit dust ever settles, whether we think it's appropriate for Westminster to be saying, no, you can't do that. And I think that's I think that's a question that Scottish Labour needs to consider deeply. And that, I think, is where MacDonald had a point, even if he was a deeply unhelpful messenger, making his point in a deeply unhelpful way. Joining us now is Will Strong, Director and Researcher at Autonomy. Welcome to the Social Review Podcast, Will. Hello, thanks for having me. So, uh, for any listeners who aren't aware, are you able to just sort of explain what Autonomy is, the kind of work they do? Yeah, so Autonomy is a um, kind of small think tank which emerged, we started it two years ago, um, which has one focus, which is the future of work. Um, And by think tank, we're basically talking about a research organisation which provides briefings, um, new research, um, collating old research, fact sheets, things like that, to try and inform the debate around the future of work. And I guess to put it in some kind of um, one sentence, we're, we're looking at what the future of work might be, and we're also looking at what the future of work should be. And how do, how do we have a progressive future of work, one where the gains of, 
of technological development are, are spread uh, amongst the population, everyone benefits, but also thinking about how we can mitigate some of the some of the crises that we can predict and which we're, we're living through now. So our purpose is to kind of provide that research um, for activists, politicians, journalists, um, and other researchers as well to try and try and inform the debate. And you spoke a little bit there about um, how how work will change to adapt to those crises. What do you think those main crises are? We think there's a number of different things going on. Um, there is we've seen over the last fifteen to twenty years a huge rise in precarious work, and by that I mean either work which is hasn't got fixed hours or hasn't got a fixed um, wage or is simply uh, the wage isn't high enough to, to live on, so uh, employees or workers have to take on multiple jobs. Now, precarious work is not a new thing. It's been around for a long time, particularly in the 19th century, precarious work was quite a standard form, and, and, and before the 19th century, quite a standard form of employment. In the 20th century, much of it, um, much of the security that came with employment contracts was actually, we can probably see it as a bit of a blip in, in the history of capitalism um, but we're now seeing a return to this kind of precariousness which it's hard to see how it's going to go away so although some parties are promising the abolition of zero hour contracts um, it's increasingly obvious that many companies are seeing the obvious benefits of having employees on a precarious contract you can fire them and hire them very easily um, it, labor costs can be very low etc now this trend continues um, and we don't think it should um, then that then and then when precariousness becomes the new norm and that does mean basically precarious life you know if you have a precarious employment contract that that's not necessarily that basically means that your life itself is, is also to some extent on hold you can't really plan for the future things like that so we have to keep one eye on precariousness i think that's that's um uh, a huge part of what we're calling the crisis of work in the uk in particular i mean think about in the year 2000 there were around 200,000 zero hour contracts but now in uh, 20 in some, by 2015 there are in fact sorry by this year 2018 2019 there are just under a million just under a million people on zero contracts so actually it's gone up almost five times and um, so on the one hand precariousness and then th that's also partly driven by uh, new available available technologies so often these precarious contracts are driven by um, also are, are, are kind of doled out by uh, platform task-based companies, whether it's TaskRabbit, Amazon's Mechanical Turk, Deliveroo, Uber. So to some extent, this is driven also by the technologies that can facilitate this kind of um, precarious uh, precarious contracts. But also technology works in other ways as well, and we have to keep one eye on um, technological unemployment and technological displacement. Now, a lot of t the kind of news scares around Technology often a bit too hand-fisted, so you know we're probably not talking about 50% of people being unemployed in the next 10, 20 years because of the robots taking their jobs. But we are looking at a continued trend of automation that's been occurring for at least 40 years since the advent or the introduction of high-level computers into the workplace, which will mean the, the continued what's called the hollowing out of, of employment. So you have the creation of high-income jobs on the one hand and low-income jobs on the other, and middle-income jobs have been tended to be displaced or at least sorry that they're not really not displaced they're not they're not being created as much as the other as these kind of lower high income jobs so you have this kind of polarization which is which is often not talk, talked about that much but actually is, is really really important when we're talking about the future of work because the middle class obviously the backbone of the 20th century it's the aspirations of those in low incomes to move into middle income work but that that looks increasingly unlikely as a lot of this work was routine uh, easily automatable and that's that's the real fear in some sense of, of, of the technologies that are, are going to be continued to roll out in the next 10, 20 years. That actually, we're not going to have middle income roles to the scale that you have in the 20th century, our parents' generation, for example. The precariousness, technological polarisation, and of course, there are continuing rather long-standing worries that we should probably talk about. And I think I'll just mention them and you can pick up whichever ones you want to talk about. But I think we should talk about gender. Work's always been gendered, the unpaid work of the household versus the kind of male breadwinner model. That's to some extent breaking down, but it doesn't mean that women are not doing the unpaid work. Women tend to, doing, tend to be doing paid work and the unpaid work of the home. So that is a continuing continuing problem that we need to face going forward. Um, and that's something which is it's perhaps not a new part of a crisis, but nonetheless something which, which hasn't really been addressed and we need to continue to push for that equality. And then finally, the environmental crisis. So how do we how do we change the way our economies work so that they're not so carbon intensive, they're not so destructive for the environment, um, and how do we, and that means not only changing the way we work and what what kind of fuel we use and what resources we use, but also the amount we work. 
So you know, it's it's it's, it's been proven very very substantially, like, convincingly that the, the the length of time we work for, the the length of the working week, it correlates very strongly with with our uh, impact on our carbon footprint, for example. So I think all these different aspects put together are kind of facets of 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 a crisis of work, which basically tells us that the way we work is is simply not working anymore. In your recent report, a shorter working week, a radical and pragmatic proposal, which I think everyone should be uh, every social review um, listener should be reading. Um, it mentioned talked about how the shorter working week can help to address gender inequality, gender uh, the gender pay gap. How would this work? Uh, so how how does it address that those problems? Yes, as you say, it's one part of our report on the shorter working week. Um, Reduction of working hours has been a demand of, of uh, feminist movements for a long time um, and it, reducing the working week um, without a loss in pay will benefit um, female workers in a number of ways. On the, on the one hand, this would mean that the income of those working in part-time roles would effectively go up if the per hour amount that we're, we are earning because of the shorter working week without a loss in pay goes up, it means that those working in part-time roles have, have basically a higher pay per hour and it's women that tend to be in part-time roles. So effectively, they're better remunerated um, in part-time roles, and that's, that tends to be females. Um, we also, because women tend to be the main uh, child carers in, in, in households still, and most, most of them are doing um, work at the home, then actually reducing the working week will free up both men and women to actually have a more equally fair sharing of more equal sharing of these tasks. So actually, it's kind of it's 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 not necessarily a sufficient condition for gender equality, but it will provide less time um, away from the home. Uh, so it provide it provide more time at home for both partners in in let's say dual income household, allowing for those conditions for, for of this task and less of a strict division of labour of the household. Um, and so for these reasons, it's 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 what it's that's why it's been a, a kind of traditional demand of of, of feminist movements that actually. Um, reducing the time we have to spend up with our employer means that actually um, more focus can be can be had on on the household and how how labour is divided there. Just to go back to the short working week, uh, the four day week is sort of my um, the thing that I will always bang on about at the pub to all my friends, non politics friends. And the most frequent reply that I always get from them is um, that it all sounds great, but it wouldn't work in x industry or it wouldn't work in y industry or um so it wouldn't particularly like hospitality or the nhs is is there a counter to this and i think also thinking about thinking about that question um how can you sort of implement a shorter working week without um without intensifying the work that has to be done because obviously the point isn't to um still have all the problems in terms of like stress and things by intensifying work by shortening the working week that could you could see that as a possible side effect i think you cite the example of um i think it's the french example in your report so so i guess that's two questions there so i think the thing to keep in mind in this context is that when we're talking about a demand like reducing the working week or a proposal for such a thing, then obviously it's always going to have the rebuttal that it's that's simply not possible, that it's a, it's a utopian ideal. Um, but the context of this is, is obviously that we've had in the UK, across the world, particularly the global north, we were working seven days a week, we were working six days a week. The weekend was only really normalised in the UK after World War II. Um, the five-day week was obviously won by American unions. Uh, before World War Two, and actually stonemason unions in Australia won that eight-hour day. So actually, we were working longer weeks, and the weekend didn't exist. And even at, and at that point, people said, "Okay, it's impossible to have a five-day week. We have to work seven days. We have to work six days." So the context is really that actually, at every at different points, when we reduced our working time, it was always said to be impossible. How would it work here? How would it work there? Um, I think famously in Marx's Capital, when he talks about the reduction of the working week or the, or the ten-hour day, he was talking about businessmen and employers were saying actually the 11th hour is where we make all our money we can't possibly get rid of the 11th hour we have to have the 11th hour day this is this is going to shut down business and of course it didn't and of course the reductions of the working week from the 7 to the 6 to the 5 day happened in what's called the golden age of capitalism you know, from 1900 to 1970 this was this period was was you know actually the most successful time for 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 for, for employers and workers alike so actually in the the broad response is it's not impossible. We haven't somehow found ourselves 
um, on that, uh, at, the, at the kind of the limit of what's actually possible. Five day week is, is actually the optimum amount of work. No, that's that that that's that doesn't make any sense if you look at it in that broad context. Okay, okay, so more specifically though, it's true that different industries need different strategies. For example, manufacturing. To, to, if you want to maintain productivity, we have to think about investing in new technology to go alongside these reductions in the working week, which has happened in the past. And in fact, it's happening, for example, in another industry in the, in the Royal Mail. Royal Mail workers have made demands on their employer, whose you know, Royal Mail has been automating different parts of, of the of working tasks. For the last 10 years, much of the sorting of parcels, for example, has become automated. Workers in that industry have said, well, actually, if you're going to automate, we need to have shorter working weeks. And in fact, last year, they won a four, a four hour reduction of their working week over four years. So in that in that context, um, automation has been linked by workers to shorter working hours. Now, in manufacturing, you might see the same thing. Manufacturers might start automating factories and workers might say, well, actually, if you're going to automate factories, you know, we need to make sure we see some of those gains. Okay, so diff so you have manufacturing, you have service work, you have the NHS, you have teaching. They're all different sectors, the only different strategies. Sometimes it might need empl employing more people. The NHS, for example, or teaching, if you want to maintain a 24-hour service, if you want to maintain the kind of care that we need, um, then actually it might need, need employing more nurses or teachers, for example. Now, these are, th these are details we need to talk about and, and engage with if we're talking about the deployment of these strategies. But there's nothing... Uh, a priori, which 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 means that we can't have um, a four-day week in every single industry. Just like in the past, we've now moved to broadly a five-day week, a 40-hour 40, 40 week across the board. Um, it's not as if we have one industry now where workers, every worker in that industry is having to work seven days simply because of the limits of that industry. So it's important to keep that in mind um, as we have this debate. As an ex-primary school teacher, I can definitely agree that a four-day week would I think I feel like it would work. I feel like the kids are shattered by Friday. Teachers are shattered by Friday. You, you're not. I don't think you're at your most productive after um, by the end of the week. So I definitely think that that, that is something that could work in education. Uh, so moving away from the shorter week, autonomy also does a lot of thinking about uh, universal basic income (UBI). Um, how would you see that working in a UK context, and what sort of challenges? Um, might it face or or does it address itself i mean ubi is as you're right quite right that we're, we're we're interested in ubi as a kind of um, new social settlement as part of a new social settlement a new form of social security which would go alongside other benefits that are still necessary so for, for example disability benefits housing benefits we need to think a bit more about that but ubi doesn't replace those things ubi will replace things like job seekers allowance um uh, child tax credits for example and so in the UK context, I think we'd have to start with a modest basic income. I mean, just to be clear, basic income is a cash payment regularly to individuals, either on a weekly or a monthly basis. It's non-withdrawable. It's unconditional. Um, it's it's quasi-universal, so there are certain limits to how universal it can be. But ultimately, it could probably be at it will be as ideally it will be as universal as our current welfare system is, and probably a bit more universal if you want to be a bit more progressive. So, for example, you might have higher rates than we do now for refugees and asylum seekers, for example. But ultimately, it's there'll be certain limits, national limits to it, which have to be negotiated. Okay, so we think in the UK context, the basic income um, would ha have to start at a modest rate. Um, so it wouldn't be a full basic income, as they call it. It wouldn't be a basic income which, you know, provides a thousand pounds a month to every individual. But probably would be introduced as a, as a modest, a modest rate, say of about sixty, seventy pounds a week for an adult, more for a pensioner, less for a child, um, and this this level could be increased over time. So I think I would, I would direct listeners um, to the Compass reports, the recent one, basic income, um, a basic income for all. Uh, from desirability to feasibility. So if you go to the, the Compass website, you'll find it there. I think it's the, the, the best report that we've seen on, on what basic income could look like in the UK and could be introduced within the first term of the government. Now, basic income, is it, it, it speaks to a number of issues. Um, some people talk about how paying a cash payment to everyone actually increases the, increases the quality because there's much work, much caring work, and much good that citizens do, which is not remunerated work, which they don't get uh, recognized for. But now with a cash payment, you could see it as a kind of a citizen's dividend. That's that's one argument. And um, for me, the most convincing argument is, 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 is 
seeing basic income finally as the end of the legacy of the poor laws and our very punitive social security system we've had for, for centuries. So you had the poor laws, the workhouse system, the job center, universal credit, all these things were intentionally and have been intentionally designed as um, kind of uh, not uh, so unwelcoming punitive systems in which to kind of coerce people back into taking any job they can and making life out of a job intentionally bad um, and hostile, a hostile environment for the unemployed. And I think a universal basic income is actually a, a left turn away from that, saying, well, actually, if you're unemployed, you will have unconditional support. We know you probably want to go find another job. We know you probably want to do do whatever it is that you, that, that you want to pursue in your life, but it doesn't matter. We're going to, we're going to support you either way. And I think that's progress um, in my eyes. And that's something which, you know, is, is, is at the moment, you know, the, the conversation about what's the future of welfare is actually pretty limited. We can think about what that is. I think a basic income should be part of that. You know, it's very well asking for new services, transport, health, education. We should have all these things. But thinking about what happens if you're unemployed, how do you support yourself? Um, that's a conversation I think we need to have. And I think basic income speaks to that. A sort of a criticism you sometimes see of UBI that um, I think particularly in that there is some sort of Silicon Valley advocates of it that that there's sort of a there's a free market capitalist argument for UBI as well as the sort of left argument for it. So how do we sort of resist it becoming um, that sort of free market neoliberal version? Um, how do how do we make sure that the any UBI implemented um, is sort of maintained for progressive ends? Yeah, so I mean, it's true that in the last few years, like you know, Silicon Valley entrepreneur types have picked up on the idea, and I think that that speaks to the you know, it, it, it's an exciting new idea, which I think it sounds quite good to be kind of on board with, kind of to throw out there. But if you say to these, if you say to these kind of arch neoliberals that, well, this is going to be paid for out of new taxation, taxation on wealth. Uh, redistributive mechanisms, and I think they'll be less interested in it, to be honest. Um, I think how to avoid it being neoliberal, um, how to avoid it being just a free market nightmare, um, well, it's it's to talk about it as a new form of the welfare state, as a new um, a new settlement alongside a strengthened welfare state. So, you know, obviously maintaining free healthcare, increasing the, uh, you know, making higher education free, things like that, it has to be seen as this like raft or package of other progressive ends and not seen as, as, as a mechanism which can be used to make everyone pay for every single service, every single aspect of the welfare state. It's not meant to be parceling up welfare or social security. It's meant to be uh, bolstering it in a, in a new way. That's that's it, it just becomes part of a political program and, that, and it has to be maintained as such. I don't think um, it's necessarily neoliberal. Um, obviously, the origins, origins of the idea go back a long way. Um, I often think actually it's a bit of an insult to those that have been campaigning, not not myself, but those that have been campaigning for decades, heterodox economists and others who've been talking about UBI, not from an illiberal angle at all, but actually have been talking about it from a very progressive place that actually simply because Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk have talked about basic income and people start writing off as an idea. And actually, if, if they've just done their homework, they realise that actually for much longer um it's been the kind of uh, it's been pioneered or, or kind of advocated by um progressive economists who are very much on their side in terms of uh, the shorter working week how is it how how can we achieve it what sort of what policy what does the policy look like in practice um and sort of how do we get to that place um because i think the, the report talk gives a sort of um sort of raft of policies that sort of go along with it including like an establishment of ministry of labor and things so are you able to talk about some of those measures that you sort of see as being that roadmap to a shorter working week yeah so i think we advocate a, kind of a yeah set of different policy directions um yeah. with which to kind of tackle this problem and i think we we kind of give ourselves a time period of a decade so how do we do it over a decade and i think it, as you say there's a few different uh, ways of going about this and the one how we need to kind of strengthen worker voice again um, one of the reasons that we believe that the idea of shortening working hours has kind of gone off the table particularly in the latter half of the 20th century is because unions um, in the UK in particular but also globally have been neutered to some extent actually we need to um, give workers more voice to kind of take away some of the draconian um, trade union laws and actually give give the power to two workers in workplaces to start saying, well, look, we want to start reducing our working week over a certain period. 
um, and give them the kind of balance to be able to do that. So on the one hand, worker voice. Um, as you as you mentioned, we, we advocate creating a Ministry of Labour, which is already within um, the Labour Party's plans, actually, but actually making the Ministry of Labour have a dedicated team or department which is which is geared towards the reduction of working time because you know i think as you as you can probably gather by reading the report the shorter working week actually speaks to a whole range of problems um, as, a, as a as a part of the solution so actually it deserves to have its own kind of team it deserves to have to be front and center in the ministry of labor not just you know high wages not just um trade union disputes but actually um uh, as part of, 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 a, of a governmental program to reduce the working week in, a, in all industries. And what we see that looking like would be uh, firms, you know, employers, trade unions and government getting around the table and actually organising um, how to integrate shorter working weeks into different sectors um, with uh, perhaps uh, the integration of new technologies, you know, perhaps a few tax breaks, a few national, national insurance tax breaks for companies if they're doing this, uh, best practice awards, things like that. Uh, but, but giving workers a voice around that table. So that's not just about workers being on board, but actually explicitly talking about the shorter working week. So that's that's one thing. Um, we, we also we also discussed the working time directive. So kind of reducing the working time directive, um, adding more bank holidays um, each year. So we advocated bringing up the annual the amount of bank holidays that we have annually uh, up to 14, which is the same as Spain. Currently, we only have eight. We're, we're on the we're amongst the lowest in Europe for the amount of national bank holidays we have. So we thought we advocate improving that. Um, I noticed that yesterday um, or, or, or this week, the, the New Economics Foundation also advocates creating more paid holidays to increase productivity. So actually, it's becoming a new, as a new consensus that we need to create these new, new, new days of free time. Finally, we advocate trialing it. So we, 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 we think taking the public sector as a as a as a kind of vanguard, as a as a laboratory, which we can use to trial the short working week to show, trial the four day week to show the benefit, the health benefits for its workers. Obviously, nursing and teaching are high burnout areas, so it's a perfect place to show the benefits of what a short working week can do for employees, to show their improve improvement in productivity, their lack of sick absences, things like that. So we think trialing it as a government in the public sector will be a great way of actually demonstrating for the private sector that you can and should do this um, as and creating a kind of best practice example um, for the rest of the economy to follow so all these different measures together can actually help move us towards a, uh, a shorter working week and i think you know it would be kind of an amazing thing if, if the uk becomes you know never mind france having a 35 hour week if, if the uk becomes the first country to actually adopt a four-day week and show it as a success very much for listening to another episode of the social review podcast the music you heard was sweet of a mouth composed by kevin mcleod thanks very much to everyone who's come on for this episode hugh georgie and isla and also thanks to will strong from autonomy for coming on and talking to us cheers and you'll hear us again next week goodbye do we say goodbye and if you want you want to say bye? I think if we should all or none of us. What, what, what normally happens at the end? Um, it normally just cuts off after the last point and we move on to the next segment. But we can all say Oh, bye. this isn't the last segment, is it? Of course. No, it's fine. No. You don't want to say goodbye? I don't think I want to say goodbye. I mean, it can be... You don't want to say goodbye. No. A bit of right at the end of the podcast. Like, it's the cold, cold ending. Like a CBBC, like a CBBC's program. Bye, everyone. Bye, Jasper. Bye. 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 Please don't use that.